Hi, this is Tony. I'm Claire. And this is PodMed Trending. PodMed Trending with Claire and that one boy. This week I'll be leading a discussion on an article titled Longitudinal Single Cell Profiling of Chemotherapy Response in Acute Myeloid Leukemia. Okay. This paper is led by Naldini et al. from the San Rafael Institute of Gene Therapy in Milan, Italy. Ooh. A great place, if I do say so myself. Never been. Uh, n- nor have I. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta respect my people. Um, and not to make people nervous, but this, this article is going to be... Uh, classified very stringently in the the hard category this okay is, uh, this is a complex article um if you so... hear any background noise it's me putting on my thinking cap <laughs> god um if you hear any just complete confusion in my voice it's because i'm completely confused <laughs> i partially wanted to do this article because it's incredibly interesting it tries to answer some questions on cancer biology that mm-hmm. are still completely unanswered for both clinicians and researchers now. Um, But also, it's very heavy in transcriptomics, which, as Claire, you are very aware of, uh, is a really integral part of biological research nowadays. Yes. Um, Especially now that the costs for these kind of studies are decreasing, so they're Mm -hmm. more affordable and more Mm -hmm. approachable. Computational analysis is a little bit more open access than it was Mm -hmm. before. You don't need any really high level computer science background and able to do the coding like mm-hmm. required for it mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean i'm an expert in it so i will say yes. now that i will very surface level cover some of the the computational and transcriptomic techniques that they Excellent. use but i'm in no means an expert you know i went to a conference this summer and i swear to god everyone had single cell rna seek yeah. and i was like I, I barely have a grasp on, on, on analysis. <laughs> <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> Yeah, my expertise very much uh, starts and ends with conducting qPCR in RNA sequencing, <laughs> but I wouldn't say I'm incredibly good at like the computational analysis of it. So there are a few things I want to cover just background before we really dive into the article. So okay. I do apologize for kind of, kind of the long intro that we're going to have here. So first, let's talk a little bit about leukemias because okay. it's a broad category. It is. So for those of you who are not biological experts like Claire and I are, um, are you saying we aren't or we are? We are. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe that might be a little bit, that may be too confidence boosting. Anyways. Um, I'll take it. So leukemias are cancers of the hematopoietic system. Mm-hmm. So what is the hematopoietic system? So basically during early development, mm-hmm. um, these mesenchymal specialized cells form into our blood and uh, immune system. Mm-hmm. So the hematopoietic system or the HSC system encompasses both like red blood cells, mm-hmm. erythrocytes mm-hmm. and platelets, mm-hmm. as well as white blood cells or immune cells mm-hmm. like lymphocytes, macrophages, neutrophils, the things that really keep us alive and, you know, filled with oxygen. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. For those who don't have blood disorders. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Anyways, so all of the cells from these systems derive from what is called like a multipotent stem cell. This is like a stem cell that is capable of differentiating into a couple of different subset of cells. Okay. So you might think of like embryonic stem cells, which is like what I think 
news organizations like CNN and everything, like whenever you see an article about stem cells, that's usually what they're referring to. Mm -hmm. They could differentiate or grow into any cell in the body. Mm -hmm. Multipotent stem cells are like the next step down from that. Mm -hmm. So they have a little bit of a restriction on what they could develop into. Mm -hmm. These cells develop from the hematopoietic stem cell, thusly named because it gives rise to cells of the hematopoietic system. Beautiful. And it resides, at least following, you know, fetal development Mm -hmm. in the bone marrow in specialized niches that help, you know, cultivate the, the nice environment that it needs to, you know, survive because it's really finicky. A little nursery. Yeah, kind of. Uh, a little bassinet for a cell. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, the reason this is important is because leukemias are all developed from this same cell population, mm-hmm. essentially. But these uh, researchers are studying acute myeloid leukemia. Okay. So the first step down from HSC identity mm-hmm. is the separation into either the myeloid progenitor cells mm-hmm. or the lymphoid progenitor cells. Mm-hmm. So you might think the lymphoid progenitor cells, those develop into like lymphocytes, T cells and B cells. The myeloid cells develop into a, a little bit of a broader range, including like red blood cells, neutrophils, things like that. Again, this is acute myeloid leukemia. So it is a expansion of the myeloid progenitor cell population. That's how this cancer is kind of described. All cancers are really just an expansion of a specific cell population. Mm-hmm. This one is an expansion of myeloid progenitor cells. And the reason why you might think like, well, why is it called acute? It's because as opposed to its kind of like closely related cousin, chronic myeloid leukemia, this one really kind of presents itself with with symptoms. So like fevers, easily bruising, sometimes, you know, pain in like, especially in your legs or in your bones. And it usually is followed with uh, chemotherapy and radiation for treatment. Mm-hmm. There is one exception to this. Do you know of it, Claire? You probably do. We covered it. APML? Acute promyelocytic leukemia exactly. is treated with uh, 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 isotretinoin or retinoid or exactly. vitamin A because yeah. it expresses the vitamin A receptor. Perfect. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So it's uh, a... <laughs> <laughs> I get too excited. <laughs> yeah, just, you know what? You know, it's, it's, you do you. So yeah, as Claire said, that there's one specific subtype of AML, which we will not cover here. I just thought it was kind of like a little fun fact is that it's called like the M3 type. It's also, as Claire called it, the APL. It expresses the receptor for vitamin A. And so you could actually treat these cancers with vitamin A supplements, um, which is just kind of like random and interesting. Nothing but net. <laughs> so what is this paper trying to answer? So really, this paper is trying to investigate this area of cancer biology that has kind of really stumped a lot of people for basically since cancer has been a readily diagnosed thing, which has been for centuries. So sometimes patients respond really well with chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. They go into remission. Mm -hmm. They never relapse. They're good. Some patients do not respond well. Mm -hmm. They have very little clearance of a tumor following treatment with like heavy duty chemotherapies. They metastasize rapidly following the onset of their primary disease. Mm. And at the end of the day, it it becomes fatal because for all cancer patients, what's really fatal is not the initial primary disease, but the recurrence and the metastasis of that disease. And so there's no real clear explanation on why some patients respond really well, some tumors respond very well, and then maybe it recurs mm-hmm. and then it doesn't respond at all anymore. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like this black box of like misunderstanding for cancer biologists. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but there have been a lot of theories that have been tried to explain why this happens. And one of them, which this paper touches on, is this theory of the cancer stem cell. Mm -hmm. So as the name kind of implies, it's a small population of cancer cells seen within a tumor that express more stem-like behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, so they become more stem cell-like. They mm -hmm. have, you know, senescence. They are capable of immortalization. They could basically survive any kind of like chemical or toxic environment and able to go into like a hybridatory state and then come out of it and start replicating again. This theory has been really prominent, especially in leukemia, because there's been a series of like serial dilution experiments which mm -hmm. have identified that even when you propagate um, like a disease-free like animal, like a mouse typically, with a low number of cells, lower than should be you know, capable of pr producing a tumor in a like a disease-naive state, mm -hmm. they're say, able to propagate and form tumors. And the thought is that these cells, which have been characterized mainly by flow cytometry, mm -hmm. um, have more stem-like properties to them. Mm -hmm. So they really want to investigate what the impact of chemotherapy is on these ex explicitly these stem cell-like populations. And this is because even though these cells have been identified, though there are some people who do not agree that they exist. I do want to give that little caveat, but okay. for the most part, there's some pretty good consensus that, yeah, there's a population of cells that really seed these diseases. The contribution of these cells to chemotherapy resistance later in disease state is not super well known. So while people are like, yeah, they could help form the, like the cancer, they don't really contribute to later resistance. So when I think from a non-cancer biologist perspective, like when I think of recurrence, I think of, you know, a few cells who for some reason, whatever additional mutations they have, they're able to survive that, um, whatever it's chemo or radiation or whatever. Are they, are, so is it those may or may not be the same as the cancer stem cells or they are the same? They're arguing that they contribute to that population. Okay. That these like additional mutations that are accumulated mm -hmm. are really just due to changes seen in that population, which then can seed the disease again even in the presence of chemotherapy. Okay. Yeah. So first thing these authors needed to do was, mm -hmm. you know, develop just like a foundation of the transcriptomics of these like AML tumors without any like intervention for chemotherapy. Sure. So they collected uh, 10 patient samples. These are all patients who had the same NPM1 mutant AML. So they're all driven by the same genetic mutation. They are genetically similar, at least based on their like propagation. Mm -hmm. And then they collected those tumors <laughs> and then they conducted a transcriptomic analysis. And then they did what is called a UMAP analysis. This is... <sighs> so it's like a, it's a component analysis score, essentially. So mm -hmm. it basically compares the different populations of cells mm -hmm. within a tumor by their similarities. So imagine like just like an X and Y axis mm -hmm. and it's a, like a dot plot. Mm -hmm. Each dot is a single cell. And the closer in like relation those cells are to each other, mm -hmm. the tighter that cluster is. So you might imagine that like identical twins mm -hmm. would be two dots that land right on top of each other. Fraternal twins, a little bit farther apart. Siblings might be in two separate clusters, but closer to each other on the graph. Mm -hmm. Cousins farther away. A complete random stranger on the other side of the world on the other side of the graph, just completely unconnected to it. 
So the closer they are, the more genetically slash transcriptomically similar they are. Exactly. And so they conducted this analysis basically just to evaluate the general populations of cells from these tumors, the slight transcriptional variances within them, and Mm -hmm. how those cell populations cluster together. And from this cluster, they were able to identify what they called a progenitor or an leukemia stem cell population. Um, these cells had like pretty commonly known markers that ex- like are expressed on these cells, including CD34, CD99, mm-hmm. HOPX, which is just... I don't know that one. It's a transcription factor. Uh, and then they also did microRNA analysis. Ooh. Big fan over here. <laughs> so those who are, again, unfamiliar, microRNAs are just... Uh, these short, non-gene-encoded RNA sequences, they're generally only 17 to 22 nucleotides in length, incredibly short, and their main function is actually to inhibit the translation of other messenger RNA into proteins. So they help kind of like regulate like cell function. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did identify that this progenitor population had a high expression of microRNA-126. Um, which has previously been seen in like various cancer models, but not really well studied. And so they conducted these initial experiments on patients before they they received any kind of uh, chemotherapy treatment. Following that, they collected uh, tumor samples again, either 14 or 30 days after uh, induction with chemotherapy. So again, the same 10 patients. Uh, They collected those tumors after chemotherapy, and then they specifically looked at that leukemia stem cell population transcriptomic analysis again so question yes so for aml when they take tumor samples are they doing bone marrow biopsy? it is a bone marrow biopsy Ouch. yes yeah yeah not not really a way you can get around that yeah. <laughs> so what they did notice is that following treatment with chemotherapy that this stem cell population in in the tumor uh expressed upregulation of MYC, which is a really mm-hmm. common transcription factor, especially in a number of leukemias, yep. uh, E2F, uh, and then a various oxidative phosphorylation markers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they, excuse me, that was seen tumor-wide, but then okay. in the L, the stem cell population explicitly, they saw the same upregulation of MYC and E2F, but a downregulation in the oxidative phosphorylation stress markers as well as the st- uh, the cell cycle regulatory markers. So basically these cells were less stressed compared to their tumor neighbors. And they- The stem cells were. The stem cells were. And they also were uh, being kind of pushed into a, you might think of it like a G0 phase. They no longer mm-hmm. were being uh, components or like entering the cell cycle. So they weren't replicating They're or dividing. Quiescent. quiescent. I do have a question. Yes. So when I think, again, I'm not a, I am a tumor naive. Um, and so when I think of like at least solid tumors, the Warburg effect is like they are more likely to rely on glycolysis, glycolysis and uh, anaerobic respiration. But you're saying oxidative phosphorylation, which is aerobic respiration, right? Yes. So is that something that's just different in fluid or tumors or liquid tumors, whatever? Well, they were actually looking at it as oxidative stress. So not phosphorylation. Not phosphorylation. So it's okay. oxidative phosphorylation stress. So okay, basically but it's just not like, the components. It's not the components. Like, no, okay. they did look at like metabolic uh, profiles as well. Uh-huh. And again, like glycolysis was increased in the tumor, like tumor wide. Okay. But interestingly enough, in the stem cell population, glycolysis markers were decreased. So again, hmm. they were becoming metabolically inactive. Okay. Again, entering kind of that, like that hibernation state. Okay. So they were basically trying to protect themselves from needing to be metabolically active and dividing, which is a lot of times, especially in leukemias, 
how those chemotherapies work. You know, they bind, they're like DNA binding drugs. And so they need to undergo replication mm-hmm. for those yes. drugs to bind and inhibit cell cycle replication. Yes. Okay. So these cells are basically protecting themselves from that, uh, that attack. Like the avatar when he froze himself. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Much like that. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Spoilers from episode one. <laughs> So following these observations, they were like, well, this is really interesting in this 10-person-wide study, but mm-hmm. how do these things really change, especially this this like microRNA-126 high population change mm-hmm. uh, when undergoing long-term chemotherapy treatment? Because again, they only collected these samples after one round of chemotherapy. So sure. they're like, if we wanted to like continue the study in just human population, like we would have to continue these studies for a very long time. Yes. So what they did instead is they uh, took these human tumor samples. Again, mm-hmm. they all had the same NPM1 like mutant driver. Uh, they created xenografts to put in mice, okay. and then they introduced a microRNA vector reporter to measure the differences in that uh, stem cell population of cells that had high expression of microRNA-126, and then cells that had low expression of microRNA-126. And then they first conducted a series of experiments using just uh, that cell component that was enriched for cells that had high expression of microRNA-126. They collected those cells, irradiated mice, Mm -hmm. and then aspirated the bone marrow to seed them with those cells. And after about 10 weeks, they found like presence of leukemia cells in circulation, indicating they were tumor positive. And then they separated the group into either no treatment or chemotherapy treatment to see how the induction of chemotherapy altered the transcriptomics of that uh, LSC population. So they had like a control group and a treatment group, which you cannot sure. really do on a human patient. Correct. So... Following these observations, following chemotherapy treatment, these mice uh, with, again, like with chemotherapy treatment, high 126 uh, expression, exhibited increased uh, primitive CD34, CD38 positive stem cells, which is kind of a hallmark for chemo resistance in leukemia cells. So basically what they found is that following treatment with chemotherapy compared to the non-treatment group, Mm -hmm. they saw an increase in the percent of population of this chemotherapy-resistant that makes sense yes uh and then following these these studies in just the high microRNA 126 expression Mm -hmm. tumors they were like well okay is this 126 microRNA really important for like identifying this specific subpopulation of the stem cells Mm -hmm. so they repeated the studies with uh cells that had high expression of 126 and then cells that had low expression so you basically had two different like genotypes Mm -hmm. each divided into two groups Chemotherapy treated, control treated, so no chemotherapy. And that was true for like the high expression and the low expression. I don't know why I'm doing these emotions. <laughs> Anyways. Helpful for me. <laughs> yes. So they then conducted, you know, chemotherapy. They compared the uh, groups between the chemotherapy and the controls like within each group. Mm-hmm. And they found the same kind of results as mm-hmm. before that chemotherapy did in fact still increase like this chemotherapy resistant population. Mm-hmm. But then they wanted to compare those chemotherapy groups between groups, so between the high microRNA-126 expressing cells and the low uh, microRNA-126 expressing cells. I have a question. Yes. Um, when you talk about the increased population of the cancer stem cells, is that whole increase or increase in percentage? It's increase in percentage. So 
is it because the other cells died or they were increasing? It's a combination of both. Okay. So that's actually a really good question. So just to step back, they did this analysis by flow cytometry. Mm -hmm. And you could analyze flow cytometry data in two ways, either by total cell number mm -hmm. or by percent population. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, like when I did flow cytometry, I would have to do both because based on how you're analyzing your data, it mm -hmm. could skew the results. Yes. This is especially true in chemotherapy because, excuse me, in uh, leukemias, because when you treat with chemotherapy, mm -hmm. you're destroying an already rapidly, like rapidly dividing cell group, which mm -hmm. just marks them for being targets of chemotherapy anyways. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, you have to really look at the percent population of the total cells as well as the whole number. And they actually found that both were true, that okay. the percent population of those cells was increasing, but the whole like raw number of cells in that population was also increasing. Okay. Okay. So they think that that like the high like percent population shift that they saw was a result of both of those things happening: a reduction in other cell populations and the increase in that cell population. But that's a great question. So when they compared the xenografts of the microRNA 126 high. Mm -hmm. um, stem cell group and then the 126 low stem cell group treated with chemotherapy they found that the 126 high treatment group was even more transcriptionally enriched for the lsc kind of profiles that they developed so this uh included like higher expression of like cd34 cells uh, CD99. Um, obviously, they couldn't include like the microRNA 126 because they already were separating those cells based on that phenotype, sure. excuse genotype. But they were seeing like already with the increased expression of 126 like selection, you, they saw a higher percentage of those chemotherapy resistant cells. Uh, they also found a number of really interesting results, which was that tumors that developed from following chemotherapy from these. 126 high expressing cells mm -hmm. had higher uh, expression of poor prognostic uh, transcriptional markers, including uh, ADGRG1. <laughs> it's a cell marker. <laughs> um, and then they also showed enrichment for inflammatory signaling markers, um, uh -oh. epithelial to mesenchymal transition markers, which are really a marker for like metastasis. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then also notch Wnt signaling markers, oh. which in leukemia have been associated with like cellular senescence. So basically cell immortality. So these cells are becoming more protected with that high expression of MIR-126. So they're basically like, oh, that's not great, but also interesting. Following all this like in-mouse modeling that they did, they mm -hmm. were like, okay, what does this mean for humans though? Because right. do these like microRNA 126 expressing cell populations actually kind of map back onto the same populations in human tumors. Mm -hmm. You would expect them to because, again, it's a xenograft. So mm -hmm. these are like tumor models that are derived from patient cells. They're not like a mouse cell line. But you never know until you go back and do the like the computational analysis. Sure. So the first thing they did is they went back to those 10 patients that they had already mapped before by you mapping. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they took their mouse data and basically just splat tried to plot it on the same graph and see like where do these cells end up. Sure. And unsurprisingly, mm -hmm. the uh, microRNA 126 high expression cells mm -hmm. map to that progenitor location that they identified previously ah, in the human patients. That's a good confirmatory test. Yes. I would say that it's a little bit like chicken and egg though, because mm -hmm. again, they took yeah. these kind of like 
like profiles from that same patient population so it's yeah. kind of like oh did we change anything when we put it in a mouse and the answer should be no yeah but it's a good like comp like confirmatory test but it's also like if it didn't come back the same i'd be very confused so they repeated that and then uh they also decided to use some additional computational modeling again i'm not going to get into it you mapping is a whole just um and they uh found that other gene profiles that they identified in the mouse xenografts Mm -hmm. of these uh microRNA 126 high uh, expressing cells were also correlated with uh the human like other specific stem cell progenitor markers that they see in humans but additionally at this point a number of those patients had relapsed and Mm -hmm. so they collected tumors from those patients again and Mm -hmm. found that the population of uh, those cell profiles that they mm-hmm. identified in the mouse model and then remapped back onto their human populations mm-hmm. uh, had higher levels of expression in the refractory patients compared to when they were initially analyzed. So basically, that following treatment and then relapse, mm-hmm. those patient like cell populations that were progenitor in nature mm-hmm. had become more... Uh, had had an expansion of that population when the cancer came back. Basically, that population got bigger. So does that mean that they are no longer quiescent, or will there still be a subpopulation of that expanded population? It's a great question. They had the same one. Ah, yes. Yes. Um, I mean, it's a pretty... (laughs) It's a pretty uh, obvious question that pops up, because, again, like these stem cells by nature, are quiescent. So Mm -hmm. they don't really replicate that often. Mm -hmm. They try not to, in fact. That's their whole function. Mm -hmm. So they were like, huh, this is really interesting. So what is really happening to these um, enriched 126, like microRNA 126 high-expression cells that's Mm -hmm. causing them this population to expand and for it potentially to be mitigating disease relapse? Mm -hmm. They conducted RNA sequencing on these relapsed patients. Mm And they found that following chemotherapy treatment, there is, again, that expected enrichment of the microRNA-126 high-expressing leukemia stem cell population. But along with this increased marker of cell population, they found a divergence in in this cluster, where it's kind of divided in half. Where half was similar to what they saw in the initial analysis of these patients, again, mm-hmm. like a quiescent stem cell-like population of progenitor cells mm-hmm. that they also saw in their mouse xenograft model. Mm-hmm. But additionally, in this relapse patients that, again, were the same from the initial study, mm-hmm. um, they found that a number of that population shifted to also have increased expression of not only the stem cell markers, mm-hmm. but also cell cycle regulatory markers. Uh-huh. So these stem cell markers were getting pushed into a replicative like phenotype. Mm-hmm. They were undergoing cell cycle much more frequently, mm-hmm. and they think that they basically were having. The best way I could think about this is uh, when you think of like skin stem cells, like yep. basal stem cells mm-hmm. in the basal layer of the epidermis. Mm-hmm. They undergo um, asymmetric division, mm-hmm. where they divide into like a stem cell mm-hmm. and then into a differentiated cell. Just like girl stem cells. Exactly. And so they think that these cells are actually undergoing that kind of phenotypic shift where before they weren't like really, they were like fairly quiescent, Mm -hmm. not very proliferative. And every once in a while they would like divide. And then one of those cells, those like daughter stem cells would then divide into like differentiated cells. 
this they think is actually being a much more like aggressive asymmetrical division where you're having a maintenance of your stem cell population with mm-hmm. this asymmetry mm-hmm. but then you also have a rapid increase in your pro- like a uh, proliferative stem cell population mm-hmm. essentially making it be like an apps like an actual like refractory like response to chemotherapy where it's like after you stop chemotherapy these cells no longer under attack mm-hmm. so they think they have to like repopulate their disease state Mm -hmm. so they're like oh no we're all gone better divide again (laughs) so it's i mean kind of kind of horrifying to think about because Mm -hmm. the only way we treat these diseases Mm -hmm. are with these these drugs Mm -hmm. but based on the results here it implies that in some cases it's actually antithesis to what you're trying to do it's actually potentially propagating disease relapse and Mm -hmm. And chemotherapy resistance. And chemotherapy resistance, exactly. So, in those non-relapsed patients, yeah, what is about? They had a different expression of the uh, like the population of that uh, microRNA one twenty six okay. subpopulation. So something about that microRNA one twenty six is maybe like they enabling, think. yeah, um, like that kind of being easily pushed back into a in the cell cycle. Yeah, that's what their hypothesis is at the end. Um, I mean, they didn't, like, kind of really, like, go out to try to answer, like, what's exactly driving it. They were basically just, like, what's, like, when we compare these two populations, Mm -hmm. like, what's different and and why are some patients relapsing and Mm chemo-resistant and others not? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the subpopulations that they identified. They can't explicitly state that it's the microRNA-126, because, again, they just really use that as a population marker, not as, like, a... And induce like transcriptional change, yeah. but yeah. So that's really the end of it. Again, like their main focus was just to analyze how like mm-hmm. treatment with early chemotherapy altered the populations within AML patients, mm-hmm. and they did answer that. Mm-hmm. Again, it's just kind of heartbreaking that it's like, especially from a clinical viewpoint, yeah. that there's really very narrow like options for these patients and then you're sitting there and you're just going to be like is that actually helping you hope and it does in a lot of cases it's just you know with diseases like aml which Mm -hmm. has like a pretty low five-year survival rate i think Mm -hmm. it's like around 30 40 Mm percent like are the odds in your favor you you really don't know there's really no way to know how does this compare to other blood cell cancers it's hard to compare with CML and CLL because uh-huh. CLL, which is chronic uh, lymphocytic leukemia. Chronic lymphoid leukemia? Chronic lymphoid <laughs> leukemia. Thank you. Um, I was like, that's not right. Uh, depending on the age and the diagnosis and the symptoms, mm-hmm. you don't treat that at all sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the patients are generally over 65. They mm-hmm. generally are asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. There's really no reason to treat them because, I mean... What's the benefit of it? Nothing, because it's usually a really slow-progressing disease. Mm -hmm. CML is a little bit different. It's mostly caused by the Philadelphia translocation. Mm -hmm. So there's imatinib uh, is like Mm -hmm. the drug that specifically targets that genetic difference. So it's really good at causing, you know, like remission. Mm -hmm. It does have a tendency sometimes to undergo like blast crisis, which is really Mm -hmm. the the really hallmark dangerous aspect of that leukemia. Mm Um, and then it can actually progress into acute myeloid leukemias. A really terrible kind of situation there because, again, like, CML is incredibly treatable. Mm-hmm. AML, not, not so much. 
ALL mm -hmm. is almost, ex not exclusively, but it's almost predominantly seen in pediatric cases. Mm -hmm. And as long as you don't relapse, you have an incredibly high five-year survival rate. It's like in the 90s, which is almost unheard of, yeah. other than actually really CML, now that I think about that. <laughs> um, but it can progress and become more aggressive. Mm -hmm. But even then, like the likelihood of that is, is significantly lower than AML. That being said, there's actually two subsets of ALL. There's B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia and then T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And anyone who knows anything knows T-cell is... is is worse. Mm -hmm. It has a significantly worse five-year survival rate, mm -hmm. but the population of patients who have that is also significantly less. So yeah. B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia is incredibly treatable. It's, if anyone is familiar with like CAR T-cell therapy, that's what it was originally designed to treat. So it's, there's a lot of treatment options for those patients. Less for AML patients, less for T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia patients. CML is very treatable as long as you have mm -hmm. the translocation and you don't progress from blast crisis into AML. And then CLL is just kind of like you just watch and wait <laughs> mm -hmm. because you can treat patients with chemotherapy. They have those options, but mm -hmm. there's no reason to if they're not symptomatic and they aren't progressive. So yeah, that was a lot more information about other cancer cells, but whatever. Anyways, uh, any other questions, any final thoughts, any, I don't think I have any final thoughts. Yeah. Well, I'll just end by just reiterating this. Like, I think it goes to show just like the lack of understanding we have in a lot of these diseases and how mm -hmm. to treat them best. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, trust your physician. If they say you have this disease and you should go undergo chemotherapy, don't be like, well, there is that one paper because it, this is really inconclusive at this time. This it's, is not medical advice. It's not medical <laughs> advice, exactly. Um, and again, like the best clinical like approach for AML, even mm -hmm. though, again, not medical advice, but based on just like the, the standards of care for these patients, mm -hmm. chemotherapy like treatment and radiation treatment are first line choices mm -hmm. because they do increase survival and reduce death. Mm -hmm. But then again, this paper is really showing that there's still gaps in our knowledge of the treatment mm -hmm. of these patients. And it's really important to try to understand these diseases and how they function and how they respond to how we treat them. Um, and that's my two cents for uh, donating to, uh, you know, <laughs> places to increase cancer research. Um, Shout out to... The American Cancer Society is a good one. Um, if you want to, like, specifically look towards, like, pediatric cancers, Alex Lemonade Stand is a good one. You could also just donate to local, like, research hospitals. Mm -hmm. Sanford Research is always available. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can send you our don't personal worry. I don't. <laughs> I don't work there anymore, and I don't get paid by them anymore, so I could definitely tell you guys to do that. I mean, there's there's a bunch of them. I mean, mm -hmm. the NCI, I believe, I don't know if they actually take donations. No idea. I don't either. I mean, there's, like, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. They obviously take donations. Um, AACR, which is the American Association for Cancer Research, is the largest uh, cancer research association in the United States. It's actually a, a global charity or a global organization, but you know you could always reach out and donate to them. Um, CCRF, Children's Cancer Research yeah, Fund. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one as well. I think that's what is that in Minnesota? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of places to do that. I mean, especially for pediatric cancers. Going to toot my own like hopeful career path here <laughs> we're always in desperate need of, of research funds because compared to adult cancers it's just less funding available mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um with those really uplifting thoughts 
<laughs> that's it for this episode. Um, hope it wasn't too complicated or boring. Uh, and see you guys next time.